Hello, you guys. Welcome back to The Archers. This is Madison. And I'm Katie. How are you doing, Madison? I'm super good. I I feel really, like, charged up and refreshed after Mm. our little break. I needed, like, the holidays. Yes. Our holiday hiatus. Tis the damn season for... We entered our rep era. Yes. (laughs) that's true the classic hiatus it really is our rep era because we're coming out of the ashes with new things love that um yes we have a very exciting announcement for all of you archers all of you listeners in this new year 2022 we are going to be starting a patreon yes i'm so excited i'm so excited too so this will be completely supplemental um we'll still be releasing episodes every other week free for everyone what the patreon is going to function as is more of a kind of low-key gossipy how would you describe it like conversational um it's like it's like our our burner account for the podcast it's like our finsta for for this podcast (laughs) like it's gonna be where we can be more opinionated i think we try to be very fact-based and very like theorizing here on the podcast very smart very accessible um, very academic and then our patreon we really want to cut loose um (laughs) uh, share some of the more unhinged theories that we may have some of the more like i said gossipy talk or you know the gayler theories that we would only really share in community with each other so We're going to be releasing two Patreons a month. So if you're a patron, you'll be able to get one episode a week for a month. So yeah, we'll be launching that today, January 2nd. So when you're hearing this, please go to our Patreon. You'll have two different tiers that you can join. $5 will be the extra episodes and all the fun of our unhinged selves on the Patreon. Um, But then the second tier for $13 a month, you'll be able to get stickers that'll be sent to you once a season so every three months you'll get a gayler themed sticker that will design or will collab with like indie gayler artists to design yeah it's going to be like so much fun and we're also really hoping that since we're going to be kind of like monetizing this we're going to make sure that a percentage of everything that we make and everything that you give to us will be going to like independent local lgbtq organizations yeah mutual aid funds and those will probably will switch up depending on on where we see the most need we will have a link available in the podcast description for this episode and i'll add it to the actual podcast description um, to the Patreon for you to access it. We are also going to be making a Twitter account for the Archers podcast. Yes. Yes. Um, I think we decided on the at being the Archers pod. I have to make it still, but it will be up by the time <laughs> this episode is up. So if you want to follow us there, we can kind of like shitpost there and like interact with you guys more there. You guys can DM us there too if you have any recommendations for LGBT organizations or things to that we can kind of provide mutual aid and like give a part of the money that we're making too yes please any organizations that that you think of um yeah switching them up and then keeping them local and kind of proven community-based is is most important definitely focusing on people of color as well because Mm -hmm. katie and i are both white we or monetizing on this kind of like queer podcast and most of the mm-hmm. queer people who need 
the mutual aid are people of color. So that's yeah. that's our main focus. If you know of any um, good places for us to send our money towards, then please do let us know. We already have episodes planned. Our first episode is going to be really a look into uh, some of our most, as we like to say, unhinged theories. <laughs> um, some of our most out there thoughts, whether they're based in reality or not, you'll be the judge. And then our second Patreon episode is much requested delving into the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo. So that'll be dropping in late January. Please come check us out. It'll be great to be doing four episodes a month with the Patreon. It's like, it's like all the stuff that we don't want to get sued for saying here, you know? Exactly. If we're going to get sued, at least like pay for our Patreon before you sue us. You know, pay for our legal fees. (laughs) Exactly. That's what this is. It's just a legal fee collection for when we inevitably get sued. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Amazing. But yeah, so check out the Patreon. I'll make sure to put the link in the descriptions and everything so that you guys can find it. Check out our Twitter. Yeah, now on to the episode. This has been a long time coming. This is going to be our literary references episode. And we'll be focusing on three literary references in this particular episode. We'll be focusing on Emily Dickinson, the works of Emily Dickinson, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. A lot of you requested delving into her great gap be references we are going to put that on the back burner for now because they are so prolific that we really want to do a whole episode on them it takes a lot to get into the great gatsby so we're gonna just just wait for that yeah these three are more things that we both kind of are already really familiar with so there wasn't like there wasn't a whole lot of like research that went into well there definitely was but not as much (laughs) like for the great gats i would need some time to really process that and look into it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. there's so many references from taylor and the great gatsby from like really early on taylor swift so it would need to be very concise and i'm not trying to botch that so we will have another episode where we just stay tuned for the great gatsby one i know um someone else requested talking about dusty springfield um which Mm. we kind of brushed on in the um first episode if you're interested in listening to that one we can definitely go deeper into that too in another episode i know emily dickinson has really been at the forefront of everyone's minds because the most recent season of dickinson containing ivy a song that's pretty accepted across the board as being about emily dickinson and sue's relationship what is sue's last name uh gilbert that was very exciting for gaylers and hetlers alike uh for ivy to be in dickinson because like like I said, it's pretty much accepted across the board that Ivy is about them. Yeah, even even Hitlers that are usually mad at me in my comments will comment about Ivy and be like, nah, Ivy is sapphic. Ivy is sapphic. <laughs> And they they don't want to admit that it's from Taylor's POV. They're just like, oh, she's a storyteller and she's telling the story of Emily and Sue and this and that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Katie actually brought something really interesting up the other day. In college, your professor like gaslit you about Emily being queer. I still can't believe this. It's honestly hard to process because in the past few years with the Dickinson um, on Apple TV, if you're not familiar with it, that series paired with a movie that came out a few years ago starring... Um, she's on SNL, Molly Shannon, Molly Shannon. This movie came out a few years ago called Wild Nights with Emily. 
that movie and the series Dickinson portray Emily Dickinson as a lesbian, a like flat out, very passionate lesbian. That shook me to my core because way back in 2011, when I was a sophomore in college, I took an American poetry class and my professor, who was the chair of the English department at my college, responded to my queries about literally queer pause that word that query did you just come up with that query query yeah oh i thought it was a mix of queer and theory (laughs) did you just come up with that i love that no query is like a synonym for question that's it's q yeah it's the other yeah 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 I thought you were trying to combine queer theory as a word and make it its own thing. And I was like, oh my God, so cool. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Promise me you'll leave that in and you won't. I will. That's hilarious. Okay. Okay. So he, about your query, he was like, you're crazy. Yes. So I was reading Emily Dickinson because we had a whole unit on her in this American poetry class. And I was like, so many of these poems are so sapphic. Like, and I'm not even talking about the Sue forevermore. I just mean like her her imagery. It was kind of like seeing a Georgia O'Keeffe painting. And you're like, oh, that's just vaginas. Like it's kind of like listening to a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> you know, now that you said now that you say it like that. So I asked him, I was like, is Emily Dickinson like, was there any evidence of her being queer like or be i probably said like a lesbian he was so taken aback that i said that and was like there's really no evidence that she had any sort of sexuality he was she was pretty much seen as asexual and the only relationships that she did have were with one reverend a reverend who she wrote many poems to and uh, like he ultimately uh wouldn't marry her so he she was like extremely jealous and then locked herself away like that's what they say mad woman exactly like his response was just so like wow why is this weird dyke like asking me about emily dickinson yeah. when she's a pure heterosexual princess these um, dykes always have to make everything about being gay that's i mean that's really how people think so that i was like okay whatever like he's just a straight guy i'm not gonna think too much into that but yeah. then when i went online and looked into it in 2011 there was no evidence that i could find doing a cursory google look that emily was anything but straight and i now to live in this world where everyone is like emily dickinson was a lesbian amazing i truly truly amazing that things have changed that much in 10 years yeah and it's crazy to think because i don't know emily dickinson is anything but a queer poet and i know i love that for you like truly even in and maybe this was just my own accord but even in high school when I first kind of found her poetry I just assumed I was like this sounds sapphic even before Mm -hmm. I accepted my own sexuality like when I thought I was just a straight girl like I was like Mm -hmm. oh this sounds like sapphic before I even knew anything and then when the series and everything came out I was like yeah I didn't know that everyone else didn't know until you told me that about your professor yeah like I wonder what he thinks of the new Dickinson uh play you know assuming he's alive you think Um, he thinks about I bet he thinks about you wow everything leads back to Taylor doesn't it I know sorry it's (laughs) 
bad. But how fun to think that in 10 years, there could be someone like me being like, well, of course, Taylor Swift is sapphic. What do you mean? Amazing. And someone on your end, like us, being like, oh, well, we were gaslit 10 years ago into thinking she was straight. And we were crazy for thinking she was gay. But how crazy to think that there's a future generation that could possibly be like, of course, Taylor is gay. Of course, she's queer. Of course, she's sapphic. What do you mean? I really see that happening because we were talking to, like, my wife and I, Lizzie, were talking to, like, a 13-year-old that was, like, in our general vicinity about Gaylor. And she was like, oh, yeah, Taylor, like, yeah, Taylor Swift is bi. Like, that's normal. Like, it wasn't, like, trying to convince her that she could possibly be bi or queer. It was like, she was like, like, yeah, I've heard Betty. Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I have a brain <laughs> that isn't flooded with these like heteronormative ideals yeah. and like pounded so heavily with them. Of course, it's still there, but it, not as much as 10 years ago. And the decades of propaganda of Taylor being with like all these like being boy crazy. Exactly. It's so um, crazy the way that not only Emily's writing and Taylor's writing paralleling each other, but their lives, their personhood, their public. Mm. narratives the way their birth charts which i will get into i have a lot to say about their birth charts. should we just jump in with the birth chart yeah i think that's a good place to start and just for anyone that doesn't know as like a little intro emily dickinson was a poet i highly recommend looking her up if you listen to taylor you will love emily dickinson's work her writing if you haven't watched um dickinson the show i highly recommend also i actually haven't watched it myself i've just seen clips but it looks amazing it looks Mm -hmm. like a fantastic portrayal there's a lot of parallels here with their birth charts it's so interesting i've never seen two birth charts side by side that look like this i've never seen anything Mm -hmm. like this in my life katie i wish i could bring up a um, visual for the listeners and for you Mm. but when you overlay their physical birth charts like the circle birth charts on top of each other like you can there's an option to switch it and look at like one on top of the other like Emily's on top of Taylor's and then Taylor's chart on top of Emily's there's hardly a difference and when you look at just their signs like if you were to check their co-stars for example and you were just looking at like the moon is in this and the is in this it doesn't look like there's Mm -hmm. any parallels but when you look into the houses and where the planets Mm -hmm. are actually placed in the round chart they are directly on top of each other there's crazy lines everywhere i highly recommend looking into it if you're someone that likes looking into like birth charts and physical charts and you understand it we'll post the charts on our twitter yes we'll do that absolutely so first of all as right when i just saw that after calculating their birth charts i literally like got scared a little bit because i was like i've never seen anything like this astrology is a very occult like real spiritual thing that i i forget sometimes how real it is and this was like one of those moments where like my heart actually like got like a weird feeling and I was like oh god Mm. this is like faded like something about this is actually it feels like Taylor is genuinely Emily reincarnated in a lot of ways wow and that Emily's karma was passed down to Taylor in a lot Mm. of ways and they are like very distantly related to like fifth cousins or something Emily also has a brother named Austin like Taylor um that's such a weird detail it's so weird right and this is what makes me think Taylor definitely knows all of this too like Mm -hmm. she's definitely a huge fan of Emily as well and we know Taylor knows her astrology in some way so Mm -hmm. I think she's looked into this as well and for context too 
Austin um, Dickinson, Emily's brother, actually ended up marrying Sue and it was a tactic so that Sue and um, Emily could be close. And they lived on like a property that was like within walking distance of each other. So just for that kind of to paint the picture for you of how paralleled this is and how weird it is. And we've heard Taylor talk so many times about brothers and like trust him like a brother. The color we painted your brother's wall or like now that I see your brother as my brother. These all just it all ties into Emily and Sue's story very well too. With the birth charts they have a lot of planets in the second house specifically both of them. The second house represents our finances, our valuables, the things we own, the things we don't own, um, our self-worth even, because that's a part of what we own and our value. You know, what you own reflects how you feel about yourself type of deal. Mm -hmm. Both of them having all these planets in the second house just really represents that they can't own a lot of their their writing in the way that they want to even because they're both artists so like what they I assume hold most dear to them with the most value are things that aren't necessarily in their control because all these planets are in there and when the planets move it's affecting all of that it's something they don't have control over we don't have control over how the planets move I mean and then you I mean applying that literally to their lives both of them are prolific writers like Emily Dickinson had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of poems never published never seeing the light of day outside of her bedroom all of this was discovered after her death and I mean now we can we have access to like all of it but it's the same can go for Taylor like you're always hearing stories about how she wrote 200 songs for reputation like 150 songs for red like she's writing hundreds and hundreds of songs and how many of them are being published like they're the yeah. ones that are being published are extremely curated and a lot of times out of her control because she you know has an intense management and recording team yeah um, even if you consider even in a world where she has had 100 control since lover album um which i mean there's lots of reasons for why that might not be true but even then it's like the hundreds and hundreds of songs that she's written and not recorded before then yeah it very similar to Emily in that sense exactly though because it's like what they're what they're writing are these little pieces of themselves that they own but do they really own it own it officially if it's not published and if it's not attached to their name in a public way and that's what I really feel like the second house is all about is like they might own all of these things themselves in a personal way because they wrote it but they don't really own it they don't really own their stuff I mean we know Taylor's drama with owning her work like it's it already was so crazy Taylor's chart on her own and how much it parallels her life but the fact that it parallels Emily's in so many ways as well is just like you can't explain that it's Mm -hmm. like literally paranormal like I got chills looking at their charts because it was just like paranormal it's like strange so yeah the second house was immediately the first thing my eyes went to um someone had left a comment on one of my videos like eight months ago I want to say and they were like, it was a video where I was talking about Taylor's birth chart a little bit. It didn't, it didn't get a lot of views or anything, but it was just something I wanted to like put out there when I was first looking into her chart. Mm-hmm. And someone had commented and said, Taylor's Sappho was in like an interesting place. And I was like, what is Sappho? I did not know that there was an asteroid called Sappho. 
oh my goodness i've never heard of this before right so this gave me a whole new thing to look into in so many so many aspects but so for anyone that doesn't know of course we have our planets in astrology our sun our moon and everything there's also little asteroids floating around in space that are in a specific spot when you're born too so some of the asteroids you might have heard of um chiron lilith the ones that kind of show up when you do your birth chart on like a website. Um, on some websites, you can actually look at all of the little tiny asteroids too. There's hundreds, like like 400 or something more than that. And there's always more being added. One of them is named after Sappho, a um, poet and writer from like ancient yeah. Greek mythology, like almost in a way. But right, it was, right. She was a real person. They were a real person. Um, but the yeah. asteroid is named after Sappho because it represents feminine sexuality, um, not in like a gendered way, like your truest, most pure sexuality. It represents poetry. It represents shame. It represents your true attraction. It doesn't necessarily indicate queerness, depending on where it's placed in your chart. I would never give that power to an asteroid or a planet or yes. astrology, of course, just as a disclaimer. Um, I'm not saying because of Taylor Swift's Sappho placement that she is queer. There's so many other reasons. That's like that's like the spiritual um equivalent to like your index finger and your ring finger. No, yeah. And I know we love that. We love that yeah. for fun, right? So this is yeah, that's what this is. It's just another fun yeah. thing to throw into the mix. So another funny thing I just wanted to mention, Sappho lived on the island of Lesbos, and it oh it's all I can think about when I listen to Ready for It, and she's like, and we'll move to an island island and and oh. and i'm like oh the island of lesbos <laughs> and then in coney the island most where famous she's like, island <laughs> yeah <laughs> the one we all know about um <laughs> but then also when she's like in coney island who coaxed you into paradise and left you there like it's so oh, yeah I, I i can't think of anything else but island of lesbos when i hear those lyrics um <laughs> Anyways, so this asteroid in Taylor's chart alone is in her second house with everything else in her fucking chart, literally with everything else. I'll name all the planets Mm. and then I'll tell you what it means. I know not everyone knows astrology, so I'm trying to Mm -hmm. do it in the most cohesive way I can. So her Sappho is in her second house with Uranus, Saturn, Mercury, Neptune, and Jupiter. Whoa. All of that is in one house. Ownership is everything to her. Mm -hmm. It's her whole life. It's her whole karma. It's her whole her whole destiny and it, mm. it all opposes her moon which is on the complete other side of her chart and that's like the only other planet that isn't in her second house is her oh, moon painful god. right yeah absolutely A- opposition of your moon oh my god so uh, you can imagine an asteroid called sappho having to do with your sexuality opposing your moon sign something that is very ruled by your emotions and your true desires as well it's just she's always being pulled every which way she doesn't even know so it also being with all those other planets just shows like Uranus is the planet of secrets and chaos and Mm. Saturn is a planet that represents fathers it represents restriction discipline like hard lessons we all hear about Saturn returns and how painful those are um Mm. Mercury's in there her thought process her writing how she communicates Neptune's in there has to do with confusion and illusions and her dreams and and then Jupiter like falls right after all of those and Jupiter is like the luckiest most powerful planet of all good luck and good fortune but it only falls right after all of 
the other shit. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, all of this stuff is really hard for her to deal with, but it's also what gives her power through Jupiter. Mm -hmm. It's also what gives her this, like, her Sappho might be stuck in the second house with everything, but that's what's fueling her ownership and her her passion. Well, I was just going to say, how incredible is it that her Saturn return coincided with her owning her albums right because it went right back it took the 29 years yeah for her to own her shit that's what makes me think maybe she will come out at some point because it's Mm. like ultimately that is her power is Mm. owning every part of herself including her sappho Mm. that's in that same house that's taylor's sappho in a lot of ways her money is influenced by her sexuality and how she's perceived sexually and it has since she was younger I mean as a woman in the industry that's just kind of what happens so then Emily Sappho is directly on her descendant which is the opposite of her rising sign so directly sits right on her descendant and it just basically means her sexuality she she hit it she she hit it so deeply and struggled so much to hide it to the point that I don't know if she even knew what she was or how she felt i think she genuinely was just someone who felt feelings for sue Mm. and that's all she knew she didn't know what that meant for her identity or who she was in this world she didn't know what it would eventually mean for so many Mm. other future queer people like taylor like us talking about her right Mm. now like the tv show fucking made after her she didn't know any of that like it's truly something that she buried so deeply that wouldn't ever be dug up until she was dead basically Mm. like Mm. that's what it tells me being on her descendant she never had the chance to show it it's all it's all hidden it's all in subtext it's all in her feelings it's all in the vibes like literally (laughs) but it's such a contrast to taylor's where hers is quite literally influenced everything and affects every every part though they're not in the same spot they're sappho's next necessarily that's what makes me think taylor's almost like this this uh reincarnated like Mm -hmm. meant to take on emily's karma from that and like Uh, use it i love that right isn't that so interesting so taylor's restrictions were more due to like money and like the industry whereas emily's are due to her own shame of who she is her rising sign who she's meant to be i highly recommend looking at their charts laid on top of each other if you if you like physical birth charts like that it's actually insane we're gonna post it on the twitter you can see it Mm -hmm. um for yourself even if you don't know anything about astrology you'll be able to see it (laughs) but yeah that's pretty much everything that i kind of gathered from their birth charts there's a lot more i'm sure that i could get into but I found the Sappho asteroid so intriguing. And I thought- Thank God someone posted that on their video. I love that. And they were very- very specific and knew what they were talking about and it almost I actually clicked their profile and I was like this Taylor's astrologer I was like who is this Um, because they were like don't forget her Sappho in the in the second house opposing blah 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 like they knew exactly what they were talking and I'm like why else would you look into that if you're not like well we're not ones to talk about looking too much into I know I'm (laughs) like who am I to look into that though I guess I'm not her astrologer (laughs) as for their lives Something I I read a really interesting piece by Maria Popova. I recommend it if you want to go more in depth. A lot of the information that I pulled is from this little like excerpt. I think she wrote a book about it. Mm. Something I found really interesting reading that Emily met Susan the August before her 20th birthday. And it was very emphasized in that article that they met in August. And then it was later brought up and it was like 20 Augusts after they met is when um, Sue had moved in with Austin and when they could actually be together 
they're on like the same property. Wow. 20 Augusts? And that really was interesting because we talked about how she talked about Betty and she was like, in my head, Betty and Betty and James, uh, James are James, together, Betty but not until 20, yeah. 30 years later. And that's kind of what I thought. Of. And I thought of August, of course. Of um, course. So I'm like, maybe, maybe folklore and Evermore both are really colored by, by Dickinson, not just Evermore mm. because of the namesake. Um, also, Susan was a mathematician. She was very, very smart. She actually was a teacher at one point and like had moved away to teach which also reminded me of the song august will you call Mm -hmm. when you're back at school i thought that was interesting i didn't know these little tidbits and Mm -hmm. i I just think it's really cute to talk about of course there's a line too that dickinson wrote when love first began on the step at the front door and under the evergreens so they met on a front porch under the evergreens that's unbelievable that literally connects to both champagne problems with evergreens uh you know like the the halls that that we used to walk through evergreen like in that song and then of course on the front porch with betty and in cardigan when she says i pictured you coming to my front porch like that's really that's really something once in 20 lifetimes oh my god okay that's actually that's actually unbelievable Wow. I mean, that's an amazing argument for folklore and evermore being connected by Dickinson now as well. Because there's obviously so many overlaps between the two albums. But the idea that Dickinson, Emily would run through both of them is amazing. And you know what? Now that we're sitting here, I just, they're sister albums. And Sue Mm -hmm. and Emily were sisters. Were sister-in-laws. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Now I'm wondering, I like just for fun if we could apply one of their perspectives to folklore and one to evermore i feel like emily's would be emily's would be evermore and sue's would be folklore yeah the one wouldn't it have been fun if i could have been with you Mm -hmm. and then love him like a brother yeah like i know love love him like a brother is from call it what you want but trust him trust him like a brother is the lyric right yes Trust. and you gotta trust your brother to marry your your lover it's so interesting these parallels even if they are not intended birth charts are also not intended these are like faded coincidences um yeah these are the like this is why folklore in itself resonates with queer people so much because the concept of folklore is what we are discussing right now these like Mm -hmm. sacred stories passed down from like our queer ancestors through time that's like all we have to tie ourselves to our queer past is what has been orally passed down passed down through like secret notes that were kept like these subtexts that we all understand the secret language the secret language we all understand and speak that's what's so amazing about reading and listening to taylor's music now is it's the same little pieces the same imagery that has been carried for hundreds of years from Emily Dickinson from Sappho exactly Mm -hmm. the more that we do this podcast the more that I look into Taylor's literary references the more respect I have for her and the more respect Mm -hmm. I have for her art and the more excited I get for people like us in the future to look back and be like look at how sapphic this was like this was Mm -hmm. the folklore getting passed on during that time and it was so unsuspected just like Emily exactly like that's the thing I feel like straight people and like straight love a metaphor that works really well for them is movies Mm -hmm. and like the idea that their love is like the movies because 
the most romantic straight stories are told in bright lights on screen everywhere so visible so visible and for queer people it's folklore Mm -hmm. it's the oral history that's being passed down it's you know movies playing on the one screen in like a very small indie movie theater like that has almost no recognition but will stay with you forever because it's like the only queer representation you've seen it's much quieter it's it's simpler and like those are the references that taylor's making Mm -hmm. um that's how she talks about her love being passed down yes not in this grand orchestrated public way but in secret ways that's the love that get passed that gets passed down we talked about even like her naming it after blake's kids like Mm-hmm. those those daughters are going to be adults one day and that's mm-hmm. a lot more established of a story for them to be named after these three girls than mm-hmm. than the pr narratives that are happening currently that are going to be dead and gone in 10 years 12 years yeah. 13 years you know and not to mention like taylor in her reputation like book album book thing mm-hmm. she had these like poems published also very very sad very sad poems about what i read it as is like shame about sexuality and things one of them is called if you're anything like me i think and she's like if you're anything like me you hate yourself basically yeah (laughs) sorry i shouldn't be laughing it's really sad but no it um, is but i mean that's literally how sad the poem is yes exactly like it's so but on these poems like that are published she pressed little flowers and little plants onto them and that is something that emily also did that they found after her death these books of i don't remember what the name was herbarium herbarium yeah herbarium yeah she had all these different species just like taped in her little book and it looked identical to taylor's identical that really was striking to me too i mean i'll never get the the biggest link between emily and taylor will always just be evermore and that ob- that obsession with that word evermore when it's in her most like it's in Emily's most obvious love poem to another woman mm-hmm. like she literally is saying Sue forevermore like mm-hmm. Sue will be in her heart forever and ever and ever and the fact that Taylor clings to that word evermore I mean she uses the term forevermore in multiple of her songs and then naming a whole album i mean even just like welcome to new york i could dance this with you forevermore new year's Eve, yes. you and me forevermore the album evermore the song evermore the <laughs> there's so many times that she uses this word and where else do you hear this word other than in emily dickinson's poems like who else is using this just for fun other than taylor swift and emily dickinson releasing it on emily's birthday i know that's like the most obvious link but it's i like almost forgot because it's so obvious the- exactly it's like guess what if you guys thought that i was using this word just for fun no it's emily dickinson that i'm referencing and i'm gonna sign off on ivy being used on the show dickinson (laughs) to close out a sex scene between two women (laughs) thank you very much she's like mic drop literally i feel like that was like her mic drop she's like yeah you guys can stop now like it's true the rumors are t- terrible and cruel, but they're true. Even just the the line from like the front door in the Evergreens one where she says, when love first began and how she, on red, it's like begin again. I don't know if she was aware of Dickinson mm. during that time in her life, but that seems to be red era seems to be kind of when she started writing more about ramping up her literary references. It seemed like a lot of self-awareness in red. Yeah. Before she was writing very sapphic, I think on accident, because that's just kind of. Mm what happens when you have 
turmoil about your sexuality Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. love stories very sapphic with I think on accident oh this line I found really interesting this is one of Emily's lines I think it may be wrong and that God will punish me by taking you away for he is very kind to let me write to you and to give me your sweet letters but my heart wants more it reminds me so much of New Year's Day yes absolutely she's literally saying like I all I want is your everything but I know I can't have your everything, so I'll settle for this half. I mean, that's uh, that's what Taylor's saying when she says, like, I want your midnights, but I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day. I'll settle mm-hmm. for the, the secret, no one around, like, daily life with you. Mm-hmm. I'll sacrifice not having the glamour with you for this daily life. And she's saying, like, the fact that I can, e- Emily's saying, the fact that I can even write to you and tell you anything, honestly, that's a, that's a blessing enough. And I should just be thankful for that, even though I want so much more than this. I might not get your midnights, but at least I can pick up bottles with you on New Year's Day. Year's day and it's mm-hmm. it's so sad because it's like you shouldn't have to settle of course it's just that whole like and God's gonna punish me for wanting more like how mm-hmm. dare I not just accept the blessing that this already is that we get to have these letters um, yeah god forbid it's taken away from me because yeah. like like that's the thing too it's like i know that i should be grateful enough for this this little i have because it could be taken away at any moment and i know that and like yet i'm still craving more and then of course this article goes into detail about dickinson bearding pronouns and specifically mm. uses the word bearded pronouns which i find so fascinating because Mm -hmm. that is emily's own word that she used bearded and someone Uh, commented and was like did emily dickinson invent the term bearding yeah that's my question was that you that commented that? i don't know but like i also have that question like did she literally invent the term bearding i mean this was like the 1800s so i assume i just i love that she is so open about that like i have to Mm. put a beard a pretend beard on my pronouns and she knows she knows i mean of course she knows like i watched something recently that was talking about how back in the day you know like sodomy and like like men having sex with other men was very illegal very like everyone would talk about how it was illegal but there were no actual laws forbidding women from having sex with other women and the reason why wasn't because they did not know that like lesbians existed or that women wanted to have sex with each other but it's because they thought women were so impressionable that if they even mentioned the idea that women could have sex with other women all women would be like what i want to do that they'd plant the seed they'd plant the seed so like they had to keep it secret and never talk about it so that like people wouldn't be like oh what i could do that that's amazing so that is despicable exactly so like the fact that emily dickinson like literally she knows like if you're a queer person you know you're not supposed to be together like it's not like it had never been invented before the 1800s but it's like one of the most ultimate taboos that like you absolutely cannot talk about ever especially giving something like bearding a name yes like not only is she is she talking about it she's also coming up with her own concepts of how she's hiding it mm-hmm. and it's not just hidden in and of itself she's naming and she's yeah. naming the closeting the bearding i really truly think this is where the origin comes from or at least 
a part of it. But so this is the quote from this article that I think is just like perfect. Um, Later in life, she flirted with the idea of publication. So she would masculinize the pronouns in a number of her love poems, bearded pronouns, she called them to fit the heteronormative mold so that two versions of the poems exist. The earlier addressed to the female beloved and the later to a male. Interesting. So interesting that not only was she bearding, but she she left the earlier addressed ones to the female so that you knew it was bearding this gives me hope for Gaylor's version of all the me too it it, me too I just think about all of her debut songs that were originally written all the demos have you pronouns and then they were all switched to he pronouns when they Mm -hmm. became a real album and I mean I just I'm obsessed with how Taylor uses pronouns in general like we could do a whole podcast series on her use of pronouns like there could truly be a whole podcast just about how she uses pronouns in her songs and uh, I just love that like the fact that she'll use he and you in the same song like differentiating between like two people and like that's why she uses them and then the way that she uses her pronouns she'll say like you 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 and then her and it's like her doesn't even make sense Mm -hmm. like uh, it's just so so good this has been for a long time that she's done this. yeah it's not like so this clever. is like a recent thing like this is her like 16 year old brain yes that came up with that regardless of like what she was feeling at the time or like whatever she was still having these like ideas and like mm-hmm. knows that you can you can switch them like that and I hear a mm-hmm. new one like every every so often I'll be listening to a song and I'm like I never noticed this how much I listen to this woman and like talk about this woman and do this research I still find things that I'm like how did she get away with that? I know. I mean, the biggest one for me will always be delicate because it's so yes. often misquoted as um, he must like me for me, but it's you must like me for me. And it's just like, oh, so satisfying when a song oh, is yes. you instead of he pronouns. Yeah. And I also love when she says, handsome, you're a mansion with the view. Like, I'm like, on like something about her calling, potentially calling like female partners, handsome, handsome. and and, and James yeah. Dean and mm. that's a part of the bearded pronouns like exactly another like great... James Dean a queer icon mm. yes Amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah so androgynous too like another really interesting thing Dickinson also wrote from the male perspective um she would frequently and deliberately reassign gender pronouns for herself, oh. recasting her love in the acceptable male-female battery of desire. Mm. She would often use masculine in reference to herself. Mm. Wow, sounds like she was the man. She was the man, right? Yeah. She was like, I want to brag about bitches and my money. <laughs> I want to be like Leo and Saint Tropez. Exactly. One of my last thoughts here, and one of my favorite findings in looking into these connections, Emily wrote, Why Susie? It seems to me as if my absent capital L lover was coming home so soon, and my heart must be so busy making ready for him. So she's basically saying... The way I feel right now is as if I'm waiting for my husband to get home. And this is in reference to um, Sue coming to visit her from school. And she's she like, this capital L lover. And she's, and, and of course, this is part of the bearding. So she's like, it's as if I'm getting ready for my husband, my lover to come home. And he's, he's going to walk through the door. Like, that's how this feels. Except it's you, Susie. Like she specifically says, 
why Susie, this is how you're making me feel. Even though I'm saying him, it's you making me feel this way. And you're the lover, the capital L lover that I'm talking about. God, I just, uh, I'm obsessed with Emily Dickinson calling her Susie. Why is that so cute? I would do anything to see Emily's works that weren't published because if this is the stuff mm-hmm. that she was willing to show because she she herself destroyed a lot of it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like what was there that you're not showing if this is so fucking fantastic and beautiful mm-hmm. and perfect like and same with Taylor I'm like what are these other hundreds of songs that you've written what are we missing I know, I know. but yeah overall these this is everything I've found with Dickinson that I I really wanted to share here mm-hmm. I'm gonna I keep posting tiktoks of like parallels as i find them more i'm like collecting (laughs) yeah i really can't recommend madison's dickinson series that she's doing on tiktok it's really really good like so many of the parallels between taylor's songs and emily's poems are just so good and satisfying yeah mind-blowing almost at times and some of them don't seem intentional some of them really are just like kind of random but makes too much sense for it to not be faded in some way yeah faded in some way that's how I think of it all Mm -hmm. um because again it's like with birth charts it's like birth charts you can't plan but it's just like some cosmic alignment and like you know echoes of the past like Mm -hmm. that's all we as queer people really have Mm -hmm. and so it's important to cling on to it (laughs) okay so let's get into Sylvia Plath and the Beltar please okay enlighten me Sylvia Plath is a poet that's mostly how she's known from the 50s and 60s she has only she only published one novel in her lifetime and that's mostly what I'm going to be talking about now I have read a lot of her poetry and her poetry is pretty I would say it's not sapphic in a dreamy romantic way it's more sapphic in a um many queer people including myself are mentally ill it like really speaks to being a queer meaning strange and queer meaning gay person uh, with mental illness and kind of like feeling like the whole world thinks that you're insane and feeling like that on many many levels so her poetry is really good for like angstiness personally that's how I knew her I didn't know that she had a book I just knew her like sad mental illness poems that I I found when I was in high school and I was like amazing sad mental illness poems I mean that's exactly (laughs) right so I read the bell jar for the first time in high school and it really articulated depression and feeling like the world hates you as like a young woman like those themes are truly evergreen uh, that she talks about in the bell jar Um, but it really stuck with me because so much of her and like her mythos as a person Sylvia Plath really infiltrates pop culture in general like she famously uh, killed herself through putting her head in an oven uh, while her like children were at home that's like something that people bring up a lot as like a a, like lonely housewife like a sad housewife they'll make a Sylvia Plath joke and in general her like depression and angst and sadness is really seen as a joke um like young women loving Sylvia Plath is a Woody Allen joke not like I never want to have his name in my mouth I hate him so much because he like makes fun of young women by comparing them to Sylvia Plath so Taylor references I 
think are very subtle. There's a lot of repetition. One of the things the bell jar is best known for is a repetition of I am. So if in media, if in lyrics, uh, you ever see I am, I am, I am, probably a reference to the bell jar because that is what the main character, um, Esther, in the bell jar what she hears her heart saying as like a protest mm-hmm. to killing herself like she tries to kill herself but her heart keeps saying i am i am and that idea that like your body wants to be alive even if your mind does not want to be alive and i also wonder if that connects to taylor's her saying i all the time like uh, 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 I. that's the main thing i think about especially or treacherous the archer. Yeah. the archer her like i i i even right where you left me, I I stayed there. Like it takes her a minute yeah. to get to the am. What are you? I am what? That's very interesting. That's yeah, very interesting. So that that really like that repetition of I and like the inherent and I don't mean selfish in a negative way at all but that inherent selfishness of being ill like all mm-hmm. sick people we need to think of ourselves that's like an extremely lonely place to be in is when you're forced to constantly be thinking of yourself because of mental illness all that's to say that the belchar itself focuses on kind of like two main themes or okay excuse me like three main themes but I'm only going to talk about two of them in relation to Taylor the first one is the media and like news clippings and the way that like journalists and magazines and newspapers talk about women and really traumatic things that occur. One of the main running themes of the book is that she keeps reading about these like horrific things that happen. She herself, the main character, Esther, works for like a women's magazine, like a Cosmo type magazine in the city. That it like really makes her realize that she doesn't want to be a writer writing for other people because it's so exploitative and fucked up. What she really wants to do is be a poet. But the men in her life are like, that's insane like yeah, poetry is like a man's game like that's either like you can write little love poems or whatever but like you're not going to be you can't make a living. Elliot. Or, or even no. more than making a living it's like you're not going to be able to get at the root of things like T.S. Eliot so why even oh, try God. like because she's so immersed in the world of writing she's always looking at headlines being like you know like six men die on like plane expl- explosion and kind of being like okay but what was the actual story there like what is the actual like human trauma that was occurring because the headlines themselves don't really speak to that so then as the book goes on um she herself is going through very traumatic things like she overdoses on pills and she like goes missing in the woods and then Mm. it's brought to her attention that headlines have been written about her and the headlines are so exploitative so you know only a third of the truth and and like nothing like reality it's so reputation it's yeah, so that's exactly so what reputation. it sounds like disappearing and then having all these headlines written about you and just being like what yeah exactly and then for her to be like oh god they really portrayed me like this like sad little rich girl who everyone was scared about when i know for a fact that everyone was just really annoyed at me because yeah like they saw my suicide as like an attention grab and mm-hmm. like no one actually was scared or like loved 
lovely or like loving towards me but then like the newspaper twists it to like this a terrible terrible victim like confused girl goes missing in the woods we suspect sleeping pills like all these things twist her into be like the sympathetic figure when her reality isn't like that at all no one is actually treating her with love and kindness and her name is just being used to like sell papers so that is very very Taylor reputation to me yeah because it's still lacking that empathy that she was looking for prior of like okay well this plane crash happened what's the actual story and she's like okay now I am the six people in the plane crash and they don't acknowledge the actual story because it's just a headline for them exactly exactly that is so reputation even like the album cover reputation i mean exactly that's all i could think about was just the like newspaper headlines and i've totally forgotten about that aspect of the bell jar but it makes perfect sense because you know the character is a poet who is involved in the media and understands how the media work and then right. sees how is so disillusioned with it because she sees how fake it is you know this is so interesting too it, all i can hear while you're talking is the magic woman piano in the background Mm. that's all I can hear and I really Mm -hmm. I could see what you mean now by like the Sylvia Plath references are very subtle it's not something that she can just reference by using evermore by like using like a, a buzz it's just the sheer like idea of the story and the the emotions behind it and behind the character so the two other things i want to talk about with sylvia plath is in so the first one is just the other main symbol in the bell jar that taylor uses so much and that's the idea of like doubles so in it the main kind of like other woman in the book besides esther is her peer who she knew from like her younger days um when she was a teenager and who ended up in the mental hospital with her and Esther really considers her to be like her twin flame like her she uses that word no she does not I'm oh. so sorry um okay. her, no, you're that would be you're really that would be just clarifying yeah no no I'm sorry she doesn't use that word but that's how she thinks of herself as like another version of herself on a like parallel journey that diverts at certain times so just this idea that like you know in taylor's music videos she's always using herself as like a model that she's like interacting with in the video or like another version of herself and that's like how esther in the belt jar thinks about this other woman as like she's just like me only she's making different choices in the book it's pretty apparent that esther and Jean are like in love with each other um Mm. gene especially is like really infatuated with esther and esther is like so cold and like cut off from anyone really like loving her that she all she can do is just look at it and be like oh like jeans has feelings for me probably but like i can't even begin to recognize what that could be about so there's just a lot of like in doing that in being like oh i think that gene is gay and has a crush on me she's like literally like that could be me I could be living that life and I could be more open and allowing myself to have feelings for other women the Mm. way Jean is, but that's not the life I've chosen. That's not the life I can live. She's so ill too that she's colored by these like depressive themes. Always, she's always looking for what she doesn't have, the lack. Yes. And that's not about, it's just what happens. Like, exactly. It's that that illness, selfishness again. Yeah. Just that like very self-absorbed, like can't picture yourself doing anything but what you're doing 
doing really just writing about like other types of people right um and seeing yourself in them but not being able to actually learn from that or grow from that because you're so isolated just like Um, pitying yourself instead exactly and um okay finally so the thing in general that i'm obsessed with sylvia plath with is before she died she had a like glorious summer where after she had gotten therapy and she was like medicated in like a good way she had what scholars refer to as her blonde summer where she dyed her hair blonde and just was like so happy on the beach for an entire summer I like think of that blonde summer as like one of the sweetest, most like sacred moments that like I I wish that we could all have. And I wish that that blonde summer could have, you know, extended into the rest of her life. Like I would I hate that like she had to live in the conditions that she lived in. That it was only one summer. That it was only one summer. But like that to me is so Taylor. Like talk about Mm -hmm. August, you know? Just this idea of summertime being like a haven away from like the cold of the rest of like of the winter and just how how Sylvia Plath lived into that metaphor herself. Um, Like that's not even a character. Sylvia Plath lived that. And I just, uh, it just really kills me, you know? Well, think of the summer of 2016 with her bleachella look. Exactly. That was my first thought. Like that was literally Taylor's blonde summer where she was being so free, so free spirited, like literally bleached hair, jet setting all over the world. Fuck. That's why even Swifties, Hitlers, everyone acknowledges that bleachella era as like this free, like crazy, Mm -hmm. like Taylor that was just like a side of her that we never really saw and have never seen since yeah exactly she disappeared right after that and we we come back with her regular blonde hair and Mm -hmm. reputation that is so interesting because you know taylor being this writer knows sylvia plath and Mm. the amount of history that this woman knows she knows sylvia's history as well so it's another one of those things where it's like even if it wasn't intended Mm -hmm. the parallels are still there yeah, I mean, I think that The Bell Jar is really one of the most important books for, like, young people to read in general. Um, I have a fig tattoo because of The Bell Jar. If you're in a depressive episode, don't read this book. That's a good it, warning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it is really a lot. It's It's very dark. It's very sad. But if you're in a position where you just, like, feel like you want to commiserate and, like, just want to like know that you're not alone and how like absolutely fucked up things are like Mm -hmm. definitely read it because I mean it was intense for me to read it as a kid and it definitely I say as a kid I mean I was like 16 when I read it but of course like to me I'm like of course Taylor has read the bell jar and that like it influenced how she writes it influenced how she sees the world because it's like a quintessential like queer woman coming of age story and she knows those yeah lord knows she does and just really quick and i don't remember a bell jar is one of those glass (gasps) a bell jar is a cloche yeah so the term bell jar typically was used in reference to almost like science experiments Mm. or like what you would like capture a butterfly or like an insect or a plant right and then you'd keep it sealed under a bell jar for observation's sake so 
the metaphor of the bell jar is, you know, the idea that like she herself was enclosed in like a glass closet, if you will, mm-hmm. um, only for people to observe, but never actually to interact. I mean, I feel insane that I didn't bring that up as the main point now that we're saying it. Well, um, I just remembered too. Yeah. Like, like that is, that is the biggest example I think of what Taylor uses a metaphor as like the idea of like a glass enclosure. Mm-hmm. A bird like the cage. willow music video yes something where and she the- can only be viewed but never truly heard yeah i think i i think i mentioned this to you when we were kind of discussing like talking about the bell jar in the Endgame music video the scene where she's like in a living room with a bunch of people and it's like a little party mm-hmm. and she's standing in front of a fireplace and a big painting is behind her still no one can find out what that painting is if anyone knows please let me know i cannot find it um Ooh. Yeah, like it seems very big and symbolic to be in the video like that. It's huge behind her, like above the mantle. But then on the mantle of the fireplace, there's a bell jar. There's a bell jar with a red tree in it in the Endgame music video. Yeah, I don't know you if brought it... that up to me. Because that's the thing. You brought that up to me when we were talking about bird cages. Oh, um, yes. Because bird cages are a huge symbol for Taylor. And what is a bell jar but a bird cage for, like I said, a butterfly or an insect? I mean, it's a little more morbid because typically it means something has been dead and that's why it's there. So, I mean, but but still like a bird cage is, is extremely morbid in of itself, especially as symbols for women. Just ask Maya Angelou. I think that there's so much here to be had. And I mean, there's so much more. We didn't even get into the Scarlet Letter. Oh, yeah. We can, we can, we can brush over the Scarlet Letter. Yeah, with Nathaniel Hawthorne, first of all, Nathaniel Hawthorne is a queer man. Um, you should really look into his relationship with Herman Melville. So there's like a lot to be said for a queer man in the romantic period in 1800s being like writing about a woman who's like scorned because of her sexuality literally having any sort of open sexuality she's hated by the entire world like a very classic i would say straight girl symbol is the scarlet exactly letter. like straight or not she was being shamed for sexual yes. Yes. sexuality yeah and I only really, this is a little embarrassing, I only really know The Scarlet Letter from the movie Easy A. Easy A. <laughs> it's a good movie. It's a good movie. And weren't there rumors with her and Taylor? Uh, yeah, Enchanted, I think people say. Enchanted yes. is about Emma Stone. Yeah. 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 So that's kind of funny, too. I don't know. It's a funny little thing to play on. Yeah, all I know is that it's, yeah, she was ashamed for her sexuality in general, not even being queer, but that's why it has like queer themes too, because it's like, yeah, because like, why would a man, so that's the thing, Nathaniel Hawthorne essentially, I believe wrote The Scarlet Letter, combined so much guilt he had because he was related to the judge, I think that is responsible for many of the deaths in the Salem witch trial. Nathaniel Hawthorne is from Salem. Scarlet Letter takes place in Salem. He was like, I can't believe that my family was directly responsible for, you know, one of the most shameful things in American history. Where was his energy for ancestors that had enslaved people? That's a great question. But as far as guilt for the Salem witch trials goes, he was like, I'm going to write this story about this like evil reverend who's like a hypocrite and shames this woman for, you know, adultery and having like sex outside of 
marriage and uh, yeah i mean that's so gay of him it's very gay of him to care and to manifest things in like a a sexual a forbidden sexuality as being his main way of articulating that Um, isn't there a theme in the story too and correct me if i'm wrong Mm -hmm. i believe there's a theme in the story where like the husband and the guy that she cheated with they're very they're almost amicable like they're they're like Mm -hmm. They're not as angry as you would expect them to be. And there's, I was reading that there's kind of an undertone about one or both of them being queer too in the story. I mean, that's the thing. You're going to be hard pressed to find any story from the romantic period Mm -hmm. where you're not like, are these guys fucking on the side? (laughs) Because they probably are, but no one's going to say that. They probably are. That's the thing. Like, I mean, that's why, you know, Herman Melville and him had like their relationship is so fascinating because they're both writing these insanely homoerotic stories about like shame and secrecy and like power. And yeah they're so homoerotic yeah like for what other reason if you're not if you're not feeling that it's like the same with taylor why would she be writing about gay shit if she's not gay you know and i mean the fact that okay so is there a reference to the scarlet letter in taylor's discography before new romantics Mm, if there is one it's subtle because i new romantics i consider to be her like coming out song yeah i agree new romantics and welcome to new york and they open and close the album Mm so true so so true yeah because i think 1989 was when she was starting to be more um like she was a little bit older and she was starting to be more sexualized by the media um like of course they've always cared unfortunately 1989 of course with wildest dreams like wildest dreams and style are her first two like sexy songs yeah i would say and the fact that her single was shake it off like her first single a very like juvenile especially the video like you have taylor being so silly in it so interesting that that was like the first single Shake It Off almost felt like her her Scarlet Letter moment or her like first reputation glimpse of like, yeah, I don't care what you say about me. Da, 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 da. Same with Blank Space. Yeah, and that Blank Space too, exactly. Like she just opened up this whole world of like, you guys hate me and I'm gonna play off of it. Just like Scarlet Letter, like I'm exactly. gonna wear my letter. Fuck you. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe if it's not inspired by queerness, which it definitely is, that's just another thing though too of like even if she doesn't relate to scarlet letter because of her queerness it's also because of the like public stigma around the story of the scarlet letter and taylor's own public stigmas around her for no real reason like there's no reason for an entire public community to be against this woman just because she cheated on her husband exactly is it wrong yes does everyone need to punish her no no (laughs) and she doesn't need to wear a symbol constantly about her like about this one aspect of her identity like everyone saw taylor as being boy crazy like everyone saw and continues as you can tell from like jokes that are still made sees taylor as like a man eater obsessed with men obsessed with boys breaking up with them like a messy girl and like that is truly her scarlet letter there is a Scarlet Letter reference oh, prior what? to 1989. What? Is it Love Story? You were Romeo, I was a Scarlet Letter. Oh my God. Are you? Of kidding? course. It's so interesting because if he's Romeo, this like delinquent, whatever, and then she's a Scarlet Letter, it's like back when she wrote Love Story, what was there for her to be wearing a Scarlet Letter for? 
yeah nothing prior to love story release she wasn't very famous prior to then no not at all so what about what are you feeling shameful about already and you're not even famous yet these themes go back farther not just because of the fame and the public scrutiny there's internal shame and guilt and sinfulness that she feels aside from her fame and like what the press says this is like something that she's struggled with internally it's hard for me to believe that she would have written love story and and like referred to herself as a scarlet letter unless she was being put through it mm-hmm. by her community and family right like or even what was it about if not directly being put through it raised around homophobia and the way that gets internalized Mm -hmm. and her Mm -hmm. putting herself through it because she just hears it about other people like Mm -hmm. if you hear your family talking about how how disgraceful gay people are or how it's sinful or if you just hear that if you grow up in that culture that just kind of is what you start to think about yourself even if no one's telling you directly Mm -hmm. even if she's not saying oh i'm one of those and then having someone respond and say that's wrong she's telling herself that and she was so self-critical so self-critical she's always been another thing about the clips that we see of her from when she's younger and the song she was writing when she was younger it's always like i'm different like i'm different no one gets me like i I'm I can't be myself around people like when I do find someone that I can be myself around that's a sacred relationship Mm -hmm. like she's felt this way since she was a little kid literally a little kid yeah and like there's just no reason for a straight white beautiful blonde girl to feel that way like Mm -hmm. outside of being told that you're wrong all the time Mm -hmm. especially as like before she was famous too that's right exactly like this is an ineffable thing inside of her that she is trying to express and like that is always going to be our base for being gaylers she has expressed this shame that we all relate to and she has expressed it since she was a little kid Mm -hmm. whether or not she has been in relationships with women at any age is literally irrelevant Yep. Because queerness is inside of us and we know it. Like some of us have known it since we're little kids and then forgot it in our teenage years mm-hmm. or, you know, not forgot unlearned it, but like it. Pushed, unlearned it Tried because to. it's so fucking painful to be queer in this world. Mm-hmm. And then like, we only relearn it in our twenties, you know, when we moved mm-hmm. to New York city, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's so sad when, when people try to like point out like, Oh, it couldn't, she couldn't have been queer because of this, this, this. It's like, just listen to her music. And just the people listen. saying that usually aren't people that are queer or if they are, they aren't as connected to kind of like the history of queerness and the, the yeah. literature of queerness, the art. Yeah. Um, I, I feel really sad for the queer people that come back with things like that because I'm mm-hmm. like, you just don't understand the folklore yet. You don't you don't have a grasp on that yet. And that's okay. That's okay. So well put. But so you well don't put. get to you don't get to tell other queer people that those those aren't there, those references, mm-hmm. those subtexts, because we're the ones that know it and recognize it. Just because you mm-hmm. don't doesn't mean that we're in the wrong. It it makes me feel very sad for for people that are like anti-gayler but queer themselves because it's like you like her music for the same reasons we do you're just not admitting it it's true i mean and i could go into uh, if we're ever if we talk about queer people that don't like taylor there's just so much like like queerness doesn't have to look the way that you think it is supposed to Mm -hmm. look one of the hosts of the lavender menace podcast just made Mm. such a great tiktok about um sunny just made a great tiktok about how 
queerness the way that like the stereotypes of how queerness represents itself like nowadays girl in red or cuffing your pants or like you know little silly things like that are so centered around white queerness too it's it's something I want to talk about more too on this podcast and I'm glad that I like somehow remembered it right now but yeah like the things that we discuss are from the perspective of us both being white queer people too Mm -hmm. so when other queer people come into my comments or just like for gaylers in general and they're like you're reaching this and that I can't invalidate that because to me, it's very relevant to people that come from other cultures that are raised in other identities that intersect with their queerness. They might not relate to the same shit that Taylor Swift is singing about yeah. as a white queer woman. That That's yeah. not their queer culture. Like yeah. queer culture is just so centered around white queerness. A lot of Taylor's music is inherently centered around white queerness if she's queer, you know, and the things we talk about too. So just to put that out there, like if you, if there's ever things that we talk about and you're like, I, I never related to that. I never felt that way. I, I never saw that reference or that connection. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Like you, it's coming from the perspective of me and Katie as people, individuals that are mm-hmm. white and that are queer and have our own identities that are probably different from yours. So yeah, just to put that out there, like all of this, when we say, oh, this is quintessential queer, da, 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 it's based off of white queerness to be full admitting like no, that's that's so true. And it's really important to say that because people ask like, well, who cares if Taylor's queer? Like, mm. who cares? Like, do you really want like another like straight? I mean, excuse me, another like white, like feminine presenting like skinny queer woman? Right. Like, who cares? And to that it's like I mean that's a very valid like please feel that way and please like advocate for what we think of as like mainstream queerness like please Mm -hmm. like I will always work to expand that like I never ever want the standard of queerness to be Taylor Swift someone like Taylor Swift exactly like above all I identify as a femme and like as a poet myself as a writer Mm -hmm. myself Taylor is an incredible, like, femi, sapphic, very mm-hmm. funny, incredible songwriter and artist. Mm-hmm. Very relatable and to to very relatable. us, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, she's a Sagittarius. Like, she is, like, a very cute, funny pop star. That is okay. That, like, and she someone, can also be queer. <laughs> she, yeah, all things are true that, yes, she has been a white feminist and still is in my eyes at least i mean i never can even talk about feminism when it comes to her exactly because i have so many so that exists as well as the fact that she is giving a voice to queer artists as Mm -hmm. of recently she's giving this platform to a lot of queer artists she's also Mm -hmm. fought for the rights for artists and is currently doing that with her re-recordings all of these things can be true at the same time yeah it's like it's just like little things like that though like this is just someone who is a very public figure that we all know about and have listened to her songs for over a decade now like yeah it's just her songs a are figure so that good. we're looking for representation that will lead to other representations that's yes. the ultimate goal not for taylor yeah. to be this like queer icon but no. for taylor's queerness to inspire other queer icons that are people of color that are people mm-hmm. that are gender non-conforming that are people that are not skinny white women like her so we kind of talked about um, the folklore like letter that she posted when it came out. So this is something I found just while reading about um, Hawthorne and about 
Scarlet Letter, it says, Hawthorne describes the space between materialism and dreaminess. He calls it a neutral territory, somewhere between the real world and fairyland, where the actual and the imaginary can meet. This combination of dreaminess and realism gives the author space to explore major themes. And this is exactly the point that she got across in Folklore. Yeah. And in her little letter. She could have quoted that verbatim. Literally, this sounds like a synopsis of the Folklore letter. And I just found that so incredibly fitting that I was like, I can't not say this because this literally, like you said, it sounds like it verbatim. I mean, that's really what I, what it comes down to is that she is just one in a line of like queer artists Mm -hmm. that like have been thinking the same things and like expressing things like she's really such a good writer and that's the only space that queerness can exist in this world right between between the real and the fake because if it's too real they don't want it if it's too fake Mm -hmm. they don't want it it has to relate to them but also be understood by the queer people that Mm -hmm. it's actually intended for it's folklore like oh the space between realism and dreaminess oh yeah i love that that's where it gives the author space to explore major themes like literally Mm. it gives it gives her space to not talk about her life or your life or this fake life you don't know what it is it's just a life and you take what you want from it and if you're queer you're gonna take that from it and that's the important part i just love that i love that too oh wow i i actually really want to read the bell jar now that sounds so fantastic when I'm when it's not winter (laughs) right you can't read it in winter definitely read it like while trying to have your own blonde summer I would say yeah exactly Um, I mean reading this knowing that she killed herself is very painful that kind of devastation is and like death is sadly like a crucial part to understanding like queer history Mm -hmm. because of the like death and and pain that has really you know been peppered throughout all of it totally. I mean luckily there's also like glory and intense beauty and love and um like resurrection kind of like from that resurrection yeah and, and like eternalness because it's like mm-hmm. queer stories and folklore truly lasts forever it's a tough read for sure I am so glad that I got to learn a little bit more about that because when you mentioned it, the first thing I thought of was like, well, Sylvia Potts just like a depressed poet, I thought. I was like, I don't, maybe she was queer, but I never saw that in, but it's there. It's there. It's there. Yeah, it's there. Yes. And and like I said at the beginning, everyone, please go check out Madison's um, Emily Dickinson TikToks because they're heavenly. Like I literally could rewatch them over and over again. All of the poems you pull from, all of the different layers and references, they're just so good. And I make it as accessible as possible. Like I highlight the parts that are important. I play the song that it goes with um they're not i not to sound like that but those videos aren't doing as well as i want them to do just because i want more people to see them and like see the references clearly can i say something controversial go for it i think that you're shadow banned right now oh i am that's not controversial i definitely am because i haven't been posting very much and mr tiktok Clockman doesn't like that he doesn't like mr Clockman. Yeah, Mr. Clockman does not like when you take time away from posting. You're supposed to post two to three times a day to appease the algorithm, and I don't do that, so. Two to three times a day? Isn't that bullshit? I know, and I'm like, I don't even have enough to say two to three times a day, and definitely not, like, when I post, I want it to be something 
important, not just like me talking and trying to get views. And well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why everyone just has to go actively to Madison's yeah, page and watch her really videos. though if, if if you do watch my videos and you want to go do a quick run through just like everything give me some boost Mr. TikTok man might like it um <laughs> and hopefully oh my god hopefully we're gonna get something in the new year you guys we are feeling 2022 oh um, we're absolutely feeling 2022 the current events happening right now I have no fucking idea what she's up to don't ask me about my theories I don't know it's I don't know what Benjamin being 22 in cat years means I wish I knew um I'm we'll just gonna find wait. out soon we'll find I'm out over soon. I'm over trying to make these predictions because I just end up disappointed so we'll see yes very healthy <laughs> please check out the patreon like I said I'm gonna put a link check out our twitter I really want to connect with more twitter galers I love definitely galers on twitter. oh a galor group the Ooh. fifth group uh will be happening January 13th it's the fifth one the fifth one. Oh my god i know wow um, yeah january 13th i still don't have a time but i always post it on the gaylor swift reddit we'll post about it on patreon too and twitter we'll post about it and patreon no. twitter. perfect yeah. yeah so hope to see you guys there it's you register for it it's completely free obviously um and yeah it ends up being like 20 30 gaylers just talking and it's so much fun it's so validating and heavenly it's really great it's amazing and it's very community like it feels nice to just sit virtually with everyone not just like on a thread or on a app and there's no pressure either if you want to go and just listen and not talk camera off you could vibe it's cool no pressure katie's really good at just like moderating and keeping the conversation going and and making sure everyone's comfortable it doesn't have to be like this weird thing it really isn't like pressure at all if you're like social anxiety like me (laughs) no yeah cameras on cameras off just doing the chat just lurking it's totally up to you uh yeah so hope to see you there so our next episode's about Miss Americana and we're going to be talking with a film scholar about um who has never seen Miss Americana. He is going to a queer film scholar, obviously. We're not gonna bring and in a random not, straight person. Just, yeah, oh no. And just disclaimer, <laughs> he's not like a Swifty, right? Or like a gay lord. No. So no, he does not know anything about Taylor Swift really, but he does know about queer film and queer documentaries. Mm. So he is going to watch Miss Americana and then talk to us about it. So if you have any questions about an outside perspective of Miss Americana, sound off in the questions for him like that we can ask him. Yeah. 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 Anything you're curious about uh, revolving the 2019 or is it 2020 documentary? It was 2020, I think. Oh, my God. What a world. It was like January. I know. Oh, perfect. Our, our oh, two, it's year the two year anniversary of Miss Americana. Yeah. Amazing. So perfect timing. Ask your questions. We'll ask him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or even if you just have like something you want us to make sure to hit for Miss Americana, you could let us know too. Exactly. And that's for exactly. that's for Spotify users. I didn't make that clear last time. And a few people were like, I don't understand what you mean by like answer the question on Spotify. Oh, right. If you scroll down um, for the episode, you can see like a little spot to enter that. So sorry, I, did, I didn't make that clear last yeah, time. Yeah, if you don't have Spotify, just DM us on Twitter. Yes, uh, that's why we're doing it. Yeah. yeah. That's why we have a Twitter now. Perfect. So follow us, The Archers Pod. Check out the Patreon. And we will see you guys next episode. We love you so much. Happy New Year. We love you. Thank you for the support. Thank you for listening to us. Okay, bye. Bye.